Cool. I like it. It was a morning like many others. If you were to have stood on the edge of, of the cliff, you could see across the valley. You could see the fog that was just hovering in it, starting to fade away with the breaking of the dawn. And you could hear a noise. You, you could hear the fire from the night before starting to fizzle out. And on one side of the valley, you could hear a pin drop. Because everybody had scattered and everybody had gone away. Everybody was on the run, just hoping, just hoping that another raid wasn't coming their way. But on the other side of the valley, if you were to have stood and you were to have looked across on a, on a clear morning, you would have seen an army. You would have seen a people rising up, the, the clanking of newly founded iron that was ready to be used for battle. On one side, on one side, there was just cowering fear. And on the other side, there was a conviction that if they went to war, there was no way they were going to lose. It, it made sense for the Israelites to cower in fear. I mean, for 200 years, the Philistine armies had been decimating theirs. For 200 years, they'd heard the taunts of the Philistines that their god, Dagon, was more victorious, was more powerful, was bigger, stronger than Yahweh. And on top of it, the way that they worshipped him would be to sacrifice babies, kids, by way of fire. And so if you were to stand that morning on one side of the valley with a clear view across, you saw the hints of confidence, of faith, of war. But on your side, on your side, there was nothing. Not a person to be seen. They had, they had left the edge of the cliff in hopes of finding some sort of solace hiding in a cave. But it's on that morning that Jonathan... The son of the newly crowned king, Saul. It's on that morning that Jonathan goes to the edge of the cliff. He looks down. He sees a sharp cliff face in front of him and one staring at him back the other way. And it's on that morning that he decides, instead of waiting for the battle to come to him, that he's going to the battle. It's on that morning that he decides, this is going to be my decisive moment. This is going to be my turning point. Because I'm not just going to let life happen to me. I'm going to live life. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Will you turn there with me? One day, it says, And Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sena. And one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. 
If you're trying to picture in your mind what the geography might have looked like, this might help you out. On one side, you have the Israelite army, the side of Gibeah, and on the side of Michmash, you have the Philistine army. The the Philistines had um, advanced in their development of weaponry far beyond anybody else in the region at the time. They had perfected it for that time the development of iron, which was far stronger than bronze. And so even the Israelite people had to go to the Philistines in order to buy their weapons. Now, if you're at war from somebody, how likely are you going to be to sell them weapons that they are going to use on you? Okay, unlikely. I know we have some public policy at times in the United States that says otherwise, but usually you don't sell to your enemies, okay? And the Philistines didn't. And so they were withholding iron from the Israelites. The Israelites are cowering in fear. And Jonathan says to his armor bearers, armor bearer, three words that change the course of his life. Let us go. Let us go. Let's let's step into the gap. Let's step into the unknown. Let's step into the question marks. Let's step into the uncharted territory. Let's, Let's leave what's safe. Let's leave what's comfortable. Let's leave the place that we've been in the 600, yes, ill weaponed soldiers. But let's leave them and let's step into this place of risk, this place of faith, this place of unknown. See, it's one of those defining moments, three defining words, let us go. And it's this series that we're going to be looking at the life of Jonathan, or this passage actually, just this passage over the next four weeks, where Jonathan says, listen, I'm not just going to let life happen to me. I'm going to live the life that's in front of me. And here's what Jonathan knows, and here's what you know somewhere deep down inside. It's that living or existing is a given, If you're taking a breath right now, you are existing. If you're not taking a breath right now, will you raise your hand? We we would need to get you some help, okay? Okay. Existing is a given, but living is a choice. And Jonathan, on this morning, this morning that was like any other morning, decides, I'm no longer willing to just exist, but I want to live, I need to live the life that God has for me. And my hope is that maybe God would stir something in us this morning as we look at this series of stretch, we're calling it, over the next few weeks where we ask God to stretch us, to grow us. Sometimes he invites us to this place of just getting fed up with making it through a day as our goal. And to say back to God, God, I long for you to do more. I long to not just have breath in my lungs, but to have a reason for the breath in my lungs. If you were to sort of fast forward to the New Testament, there's two primary words that we translate life. One of those is the word bios. Will you say that with me? Bios. It's where we get our word, any guesses? Biology, right. The other word is the word zoe. Will you say that with me? Zoe. It's where we get our word, well, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm sure there's something. (laughs) Yeah, bios, it means literally the physical life that you have. But this word zoe, that's the, that's the spiritual life. That's the, that's the life that makes the breath you take worth taking. And the Bible talks about both. 
In Acts chapter 17, verse 25, Paul at the Areopagus says that, that in him, in God, we, we live, we buy us and move and have our being. John, one of Jesus' disciples and friends, writing about Jesus after he had died and resurrected and ascended to heaven, says, in him, in Jesus, we, we life, we, we zoe, we become real, alive people to the gift that God's given us in walking his good earth. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, of all mankind, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. But he says, I have come that they may have zoe, that they may have the kind of life that makes life worth living, the kind of life that has meaning and the kind of life that has purpose. I have come that they may have zoe and that they would have it abundantly, that they'd have it to the full we were to look through the pages of history, we would see the kind of people who sought this kind of life, this kind of Zoe, who who refused to settle for just breathing but needed a reason for it and wanted to make something of it. I mean, we could look at um, 1508, where Michelangelo is commissioned by the Pope to start painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And for four years, he paints on a scaffolding above his head a beautiful masterpiece. We could look at 1518 where where sailors set out from Spain and are the very first group of people to circumnavigate the entire globe. We could look at Lewis and Clark In 1804, leaving for Missouri and heading to the west, traveling 8,000 miles up and down, dragging canoes over mountains. Why? Well, because existing is okay, and it's necessary. But Zoe, but living, that's what God designed us for. We look at Thomas Edison in 1878, deciding he was going to figure out a way to create a light bulb. And first, he figured out over 9,000 ways not to create it. And then he created it over a year later. In 1969, July 20th, people watched in absolute awe as a person took their very first step on the moon, 221,000 miles away from the face of the earth. Why? Because we know that existing is necessary, but living, living is what we're designed for. Living is what God has put us on this planet for. And you and I, we all have this choice that's staring us in the face every single day of our lives. Are we going to settle for pure and mere existence? Or are we going to chase Zoe? Are we going to pursue life, the life that God has designed us to live? And the pages of Scripture are littered with people who decide we're choosing life and others who settle for existence. And choices, that choice, not only charts the path of the narrative of scripture, but it charts the path of the narrative of history. And we look up in for a second. It charts the path of your life. That question, that one question, 
Are we going to choose to just survive? Or are we going to choose to live? It was the choice that Jonathan made. And I think if we're, if we're to go around this room, we would all say, yeah, Paulson, of course, we want to we zoe. We want to really live. We want that kind of life that's the light of the human soul. But the reality is, many of us make decisions on a daily basis that put us further and further away from that type of life. So here's what I want to do. Over the next few weeks, I want to dive into this story, and I want to ask questions about the life of Jonathan that might help us identify how does he choose this kind of life, and how can we be the type of people who choose it along with him? One day, verse 1, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, and will you say it with me, church? Let us go. Three words that change this interaction forever. Let us go. See, his dad, Saul, has just made a really bad decision. If you go back and read chapter 13, he's just decided he's not going to listen to Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, he didn't wait for him to offer a sacrifice to God. He, he did it himself. And he was told in no uncertain terms, your kingdom will not last. And so Saul shrinks back. Saul, Saul decides if the Philistines are going to come, let them come. If they're going to decimate us, let them decimate us. He decides that a bad decision should be followed by indecision. And he just waits and Jonathan, Jonathan goes to his armor bearer and, and he, he makes this decision. He, he makes this choice. Let's step into the gap of the unknown. Let's step into the gap of, of risk. Let's step into this gap of, of faith. You'll notice if you read through this passage of scripture that in no place does Jonathan suggest God told me to go. He just sees the opportunity and decides he cannot sit back and, and let it pass. He, he chooses to combat inactivity with initiative. And that's what people who choose life do. They refuse to just let life come to them. They're not people who have the tattoo, let go and let God. Right? And just as a, for fun this morning, nobody in the scriptures had that tattoo, right? None of the early followers of Jesus had the perspective, just let go and let God. They were ferocious about seizing the moments and the opportunities that were in front of them and making the most of them. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, he, he says it like this. He says, look carefully then how you walk, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the, say it with me, time because the days are evil. Making the best use, literally in the Greek it's this, this idea of buying back or redeeming the time, the, the kairos. It's this idea of opportunity that's right in front of us. So will you look up at me for just a moment? As, as a community of faith, as we start to wrestle with what does it look like to be faithful to God? What does it look like to live as a, as a disciple? Living as a disciple and living faithful to God is not simply avoiding sin. It's embracing opportunity. It's taking responsibility and stewardship 
of the things that are in front of us. Whether it's opportunity with how we use our time, maybe it's opportunity with how we use our influence or, or our resources, and maybe it's just opportunity with how we cultivate the soul that God has given us in the world that he's planted us in. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great early preachers and leaders of the church in the Americas, he said, he said it like this in his resolutions that he wrote at the age of 20 in his journal. He said, I resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. You wonder how somebody before the internet writes volumes and volumes and volumes of deep theology, that's how. I'm not wasting a moment. I'm buying it back. I'm, I'm redeeming as much of it as I can. But we all know those, those Kairos moments are hard to capture, aren't they? The, the, time has this way of, of moving. Have you noticed this? Right? And it's impossible to stop it. That's the hard part about Stepping into a Kairos moment is that we, we need to be ready for the opportunities that come our way because once they're gone, sometimes they're gone. And the hard part is we'd love to stop time. We all know that we can't. Every once in a while, um, after Aaron is done rendering our video of our sermon for Sunday morning, he'll, he'll send me a still picture of me preaching. It's always a reminder that it's impossible to stop time and you look pretty dumb when you try. Right, so, so here's just a few, some of them, right? Um, yeah, me, me preaching in front of a, or in back of a bunch of boxes. Um, here's one. Oh, wait, what'd you say there? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so, um, yeah, that's looking stage right, right over at you. Uh, there's one. Back on up, right? Back on up. Here's another one. I don't know. I don't know. Or, or there's this one. Yeah. Excuse me? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to stop time, isn't it? It's hard to stop. It's impossible to stop time, which is the difficult part of seizing the moments in front of us and taking initiative is we wish we could hit pause or time out like they did on Saved by the Bell. Stop, pause, all right, now let's figure out what to do, right? But we, we can't do that. We just need to be ready. And a lot of us, a lot of us, we get stuck in these moments, don't we? You too, a number of years ago, wrote a song. It was called Stuck in a Moment. Here's what the chorus of the song read. It said, you've got, you've got to get yourself together. You got stuck in a moment, and now you can't get out of it. Don't say that later will be better. Now you're stuck in a moment, and you can't get out of it. Right? Anybody? No you too fans. Okay, whatever, whatever. You can repent later. It's okay. It's okay. But isn't it true, you guys, isn't it true that while we cannot stop time, we get stuck in it sometimes? And, and maybe it's a decision we made in the past and we just keep revisiting it and it prevents us from moving forward. Or maybe it's this fear of, of failure that prohibits us from stepping into the kairos, the, the, the opportunities that God brings our way. There's a lot of ways we get stuck in the moment. Maybe it's vision. 
We just don't have a vision for how God might be calling us to leave one side of the mountain, to walk down into the valley and to climb up the other side. Maybe we just don't have any clue how we could step into Zoe instead of just settling only for Bios. But see, here's the deal. When we fail to choose, we choose to fail. You may have heard that before. When we, when we fail to choose, when we fail to step into the moment, we are choosing to say, God, I don't believe that you can work in this situation, and I don't believe that you could use my life for anything great. When we ch- fail to choose, we choose to fail. So here's my question. Is there, a, is there a conversation that you're just waiting to come to you that you know you need to have? Is there a decision that you me- need to make? that's just been staring at you, that's on the horizon, and that you know, even as we talk about this, inactivity versus initiative, the Spirit of God is saying to you, you've got to step into that moment. What is it? How might he be calling you? Because here's what Jonathan does. He chooses initiative over inactivity. Here's the next thing that he does. If you read through this story, and I'd encourage you to do so, Jonathan has a lot of people putting information into his life. He's got his father who has just been anointed and crowned as king, who's made a bad decision, cowering in fear. He's as far away from the battle as he can possibly be. His response to doing something wrong is to do nothing at all. Let's just sit back and let's wait and let's see what happens. He's surrounded by a number of people. They are, they're priests in the nation of Israel. But if you go back and start at the beginning of 1 Samuel, what you figure out is that they're priests who have been cast off by God because they were unfaithful. And so the input he's getting in his life is from this cohort of priests who are identified by one person who's listed in the midst of this. His name's Ichabod, and it literally means the glory has departed. It's left. That's who Saul is. And certainly Saul puts his arm around his son, Jonathan, and he feeds him information. He also has the the clanging symbols of the war that is waiting for him with the Philistines' iron batting up against itself. He's got that. And it's interesting, as we read through this, we see that Jonathan, he leaves the camp. He, He not only leaves the camp physically, But he leaves the input of Saul. He leaves the covering of Saul. He leaves the information of Saul to go and to chart his own course. And here's what he says. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That's like ancient trash talk, right? These uncircumcised fellows, right? More on that next week, okay. And it it may be, that the Lord will work for us. Notice, Jonathan doesn't have a command from God. He doesn't have a promise from God. He just knows God. He knows God's able. He doesn't know if God will come through for him in the way that he hopes. He just knows that nothing's going to hinder him. He can do whatever he wants. And if he wants to save me, well, then great. If not, well, bummer, right? That's where Jonathan's at. Maybe the Lord will work for us. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. Wow. 
See, here's what, here's what Jonathan does. He not only chooses initiative, he chooses his inputs. He chooses what information he takes in and what information he builds the foundation of his life upon. And the information that we accept will always determine the decisions that we make. And when I, when I first got here almost five years ago now, man, I was, I was on fire. I, I was lit up. I was stepping out of a, a healthy church and a vibrant ministry, and I was, I was just so excited about what God was going to do in the life of South Fellowship Church. And we've seen him do a great thing. Make no mistake about it. But over the last five years, um, I've gotten beat up a little bit. My, my family's been through some difficult things. Our church has been through some really difficult things. And somewhere along the way, I started listening to the voices that said to me, you can't think that big anymore. You, you can't dream that big anymore. There will sort of be this mid-sized small church, and, and God might do something great through that, but, but you can't have those dreams that are out on the horizon that are, that are bigger than what you see in front of you. And I'm just, I'm here today to stand before you and repent and to say, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the God who's for us is greater than the enemy who's against us. I'm convinced that God has a future for this church that will transform this community and this city. I'm praying for it, you guys. I'm praying that a move of God would start here that would change not only Littleton, Centennial, and Denver, but by his grace, it would extend to the ends of the earth. I'm passionate about our God who draws people who are far from him to himself. And I'm raising my hand and I'm asking you to do the same thing to say, will you use this body to do that, Jesus, please? That's my turn from last week. That's my turn. Or I'm turning from small-minded thinking back into the conviction that our God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think or dream or imagine. That's my God. That's my God. And I'm asking that it would be, yeah, sure, you can clap for that. Praise the Lord. And I love that Jonathan, his Faith is like sort of faith, right? I mean, I think it's a biblical profile of what faith actually looks like. Maybe God will do this. So he's like, God's in our corner. We're confident of that. But God's in our corner and he's got one arm around him, probably a teenage boy who's carrying one of two swords that the entire nation owns. Saul has one, Jonathan has one. And his armor bearer looks at him and goes, well, if you want to go that's sort of my job, right? Like, I go where you go. So if you're going, I'm with you. And I love that Jonathan's decision point not only comes about because of his faith in God, but comes about because of the arm of his armor bearer around him saying, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. I'm stepping in with you. And I think a lot of us are either one person away or we're one per we are the person that somebody else is longing for to put our arm around somebody and say, you can do this. You can leave this bad relationship. You can do it. 
You can can step into this new season, this this new job. I'm I'm with you. You can can choose to forgive and release the weight that's on you. You I'm with you, heart and soul. Please don't underestimate how significant your support may be in somebody chasing after who God has called them to be. Because when we change our input, it changes our impact. You guys, it's the reason that God calls us to do this thing called faith together, that we're not just on an island. We We are in this heart and soul with one another, and that's a really, really good thing. One day, Jonathan said to this, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison. Now just, you could read about this in chapter 13, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, numerous as the sand on the sea were their infantry foot soldiers. And somehow Jonathan, he sees it but he sees something else also. He, he, he understands, sure, there's an enemy and, and sure, they're powerful. But my God's in my corners and my God is for me. And so here's what he does. He not only chooses initiative and he chooses input, but he chooses how he interprets his circumstances. Now this is, I think this is important for, actually, I think it's a word for somebody in here today. There's something that you're looking at, and you're only seeing it one way. And there are multiple ways to see every single situation you're in. Did you know that? You may get the phone call, bad news from the doctor. There's more than one way to see that situation. I'm not saying you ignore reality. I'm just saying that resurrection and death are both happening at the same time in the story of Jesus coming out of the grave. Okay? So there's two ways to look at every situation. In fact, in fact... Will you raise your hand if you see a picture of a woman? Raise your hand. Okay. Will you raise your hand if you see a picture of a saxophonist? Okay. Will you raise your hand if you don't see anything? Okay. okay. We can get you help. There's help for that. Um, okay. So the woman. Okay. Right, raise your hand if you see both. Okay. So a few of you. All right. A lot of you. So if you're looking for, if you see the saxophonist and you're going, there's a lady in there. Here, here's her two eyes. And she's like, oh, hey, what's up? Okay. So that's her. Okay. If you're looking for the saxophonist, he's got the big nose. Here's his nose, okay? Here's his saxophone coming down, right? There's, there's two ways to look at that picture. There's two ways to look at your life. There's probably multiple. There's multiple ways. Listen to the way that the apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work or ministry has opened to me. And they're like, praise Jesus. And there are many adversaries. <laughs> Wait, Paul, so which one is it? Is it effective ministry or is it massive opposition? And the answer is yes. Yes. And it's the answer in your life too. It's the answer in my life too. That opportunity often looks like opposition. In fact, it's typically brilliantly disguised as a challenge we do not think we are capable of facing, of a mountain we do not think we are capable of climbing. 
And so what Jonathan does is he takes all of the facts that are coming at him. Yes, they have two swords. Yes, his father, the king, is cowering in fear. Yes, the Philistines continue to send raid upon raid upon raid. But, but, if God wants to do something, nothing can tie his hands. So the question becomes, what narrative do we make of the things that happen in our life? There's a lot of, there's a lot of stories we start to tell ourselves. You may have noticed this about, about you, that usually we have one central tape that we play. For some people, it's a, it, it's a narrative of scarcity. Well, we could do that if we had this, right? For some people, it's a, it's a narrative of failure, of I just, I know that the next thing on the horizon, it's just, it's going to happen. It's a defeatist type of narrative. We've tried this before and it didn't work out. For some people, the narrative that they play over and over in their mind is a narrative of fear. We would leave that side of the valley if it weren't for the huge giants on the other side, right? And that's the tape that plays over and over. Some people have this fatalistic tape that plays, and their tape says, it doesn't really matter. My life's insignificant, and who cares what decisions I make? If God didn't care what decisions you make, he would not have given you the capacity to make decisions. That's for free. <laughs> and so Jonathan, the tape that he chooses, the narrative he chooses is a narrative of, of faith. It's this narrative of, well, maybe God and nothing can hinder God. And see, the truth of the matter is, friends, is that faith is not just a decision we make. Faith is a narrative that we live, that my God is able, that my God is possible, that my God is good, that my God is active, that my God is for me, and that he's part of this story of the lives that we're living. He's not distant out there somewhere. And here's the other thing that the narrative of faith always sinks their feet into. God does not reveal a problem to us for us to pass it on to somebody else, okay? He doesn't show us something so we can say, hey, you should take care of that, right? He invites us into what he's doing so that we can be a part of it. If there's a challenge staring you in the face, there's an opportunity waiting to be embraced. There is. And the question is, will we step into it? You guys, if we read through the scriptures, this has always been a part of God's redemptive plan. That salvation comes by his grace, by his choice, by his goodness, through his people. That you are both the object and the subject. You are both the carrier and the message that our God is good and that he is gracious. That's the story you live in. And the question we have to wrestle with is, are we going to settle for just breathing by us? Or will we step into Zoe? Life. See, the choices that we make are being determined by the people that we're becoming. And as we, as we, anytime we preach, and, and if you hear a message like this, your initial thought should be, well, did Jesus live like this? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. Did Jesus live like this? Did Jesus take initiative? Well, he left heaven, clothed himself in humanity, 
stepped into a broken world to live a perfect life, die an atoning death, raised to offer you and I new life. No one was forcing him to do it. He took the initiative by the Father's plan to step into his broken creation to bring wholeness and bring redemption. Did he take initiative? Absolutely. Did he choose his inputs? Throughout the course of his life, you look at people telling Jesus to do something different and him saying, that's a really great idea. However, I need to obey the voice of my father. I'm walking with him. I am his child. He chose his inputs very carefully. How did he interpret his circumstances? Well, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So he goes, listen, this is my goal. This is where I'm moving. I understand the cross is terrible. I understand the cross is horrible, but I'm chasing a deeper and more abiding joy. And friends, because our God Jesus, because Jesus gave his life. You can step into newness of life. And living is, a, living is a choice. Zoe is a choice that Jesus freed us to make by giving his life for us. You're secure in him. You're loved in him. You're holy in him. And now, and now, He releases us to live in him the life he died to give us. And it's Zoe life, not just bios life. See, existing is a given, but living, living is a choice. And living is a choice you never regret making. I guarantee you, Jonathan never sat around the fire as he grew to be older and older and said, you know, that time we hiked down that valley and rock climbed up the other side and attacked the Philistines and, man, that was a terrible call, wasn't it? No, Jonathan never told that story. But I bet he did say, you remember that moment where everything changed? That moment where we chose not just to let life come to us. That moment where we decided to live. That was the moment that charted a new course. A new life that went beyond just breathing, but a reason for breathing. I pray that we would be the type of community that is defined by zoe, by life pray that you'll choose to live. Let's pray. So before you go rushing out of here this morning, I just want to give you a moment, and if you'll invite me in, I just want to just poke around in your soul a little bit before you go running out of here. Is there a person that as we've been talking about this, it just comes up in your mind that you need to have a conversation with? Maybe it's something you've been avoiding for a while. Forgiveness that needs to be offered or maybe accepted. Maybe it's a hard conversation, a a speaking the truth in love kind of situation. Maybe there's a decision on your horizon that 
that you've been avoiding making or that you're just too scared to step into this place you know God's calling you to step into. Maybe you hear a different voice in the back of your head this morning. Different voice in your heart. A God who reminds you he's for you and he's powerful and he's good. So Jesus, this morning, we, we would ask that in our hearts and our souls, you would do, do something that we can't do on our own. Would you, would you stir life in us? As we choose to follow you, as we choose to give our lives to you, in light of the fact that you've given your life for us, would you invite us into the life that's really, truly life? Father, would you stir in us this week? Ways we can take initiative rather than just being inactive. Ways that we need to listen to a different truth. And ways that we need to see our circumstances a little bit differently. Would you give us the eyes of faith this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing just a portion of this song in closing?